All right, God's word, let's pray. God, we thank you for the power of your word. And Lord, as it is, it is read, we're, we stand in awe of it. You, the psalmist said, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so God, I pray that the spirit of God would use the word of God today through Hebrews chapter eight. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> good morning, Keystone, good to see you. Uh, Hebrews chapter eight, go ahead and turn there. That's where, we're gonna, that's where we're gonna be. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So we wanna dig in. Um, Hebrews chapter eight, I hope you have your Bible. We're gonna have some scripture on the screen, but man, I'd love for you to have a Bible. If you don't have one, stop at the welcome space right behind that wall, and we have Bibles there that we'll give to you, all right? Hebrews chapter eight, important point in the passage. Turning point, good day to be here. Turning point in the book of Hebrews, all right? So congratulations. Turning point in the teaching series. in the teaching series. Look how the chapter starts, if you have your Bible open there, Hebrews chapter eight. Now... The main point of what is being said. Sounds big. It is big. Main point, the writer of Hebrews is getting down to really the turning point of the book. One, one writer says, what he's saying here is, I want to tell you what is the central theme of the whole book. The cent- and some say this was a sermon that was actually spoken. The writer says, I want you to know what is the central theme, the, the central theme of the book, the central theme of the sermon, what I want to tell you. And by doing so, here's what he's doing. Commentators say he's linking Jesus' qualifications in chapters one through eight to his ministry in the rest of the book, especially that picks up in chapter 10. And in 11, the implications are there for us. So we've reached a real turning point today is bottom line. Bottom line, maybe that's the kind of person you are, a bottom line person. Give me the main point. Are you like that? Fry, don't beat around the bush. What's the bottom line? All right, we're gonna talk about that. I love when scripture does that. I've, I've included this. I love when scripture bottom lines it. A couple references here. I love how these work. This is Ecclesiastes. When all has been heard, when everything's said, what's the conclusion? Fear God, keep his commandments. This is for all humanity. Bottom line, tattoo that. Uh, another one, Acts 2, 24, 25. I love this one. This is, this is Paul. He has an opportunity to speak to a government official. Hypothetical question. If you had the opportunity to speak to a government official about Jesus, you have 10 minutes, what would you say to them? It's a good question. What did Paul say? He spoke to him about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Probably could have told him about a lot of things. That's what Paul chose to talk about. Bottom line, I'm gonna tell you about righteousness, self-control, judgment to come. One more. This is a big one. Romans 12.1, middle of the book of Romans. Kind of where we are today. Therefore, In other words, based on everything you've read in chapters one through 11, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, again, everything that you've read up to this point, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. In other words, in chapters 12 through 15, 16 of Romans, Paul says, based on all the stuff I've told you in chapters one through 11, here's some implications in chapters 12 and 13 and 14. 15 and 16, all right? So we've reached that kind of point in the book of Hebrews where the author says, deep breath, main point. This is the main point of what I wanna say. And what is that main point? I'm gonna give it to you at the top and you can go home. No, you can't. Here is the main point, I think. Well, there's a lot of ways we could word it, but I want us to remember it. We can have confidence in the new covenant. That's the main point. What's the main point? You can have confidence in the new covenant. New covenant. You heard that read this morning. That's some new language layered on top of Melchizedek and high priest and all these words we've learned in Hebrews. The writer's gonna talk to us about the new covenant. We'll get to that. 
Here, though, I think is the main point of what is being said. You can have confidence in the new covenant. What is a new covenant? Again, we're going to get to it in a word. It's the work that Jesus has done. It's the fact that Jesus is better. Um, I think the author talks about confidence really well in four verses 15 and 16. Go back. We, why do we have confidence in the new covenant? Well, look what Jesus accomplished. We don't, it's in the negative here. We don't, we could say we do have a high priest, Jesus. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's Jesus. He's been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us what? Confidently. So with confidence now, used to be I couldn't approach God, old covenant. Now I can. And not only can I, I can do it confidently. I can approach the throne of grace. I can approach God to receive mercy and find grace whenever I need it because of Jesus. That's the main thing. There are 100 steps from my door to my mailbox cluster, walking west. I hate that walk when I go get the mail. I don't know if you're with me, but Iowa win, like Eric Hayes' new worship leader, if there's anything, I'm going to send him back to Georgia. It's the Iowa win, but whatever. 100 steps. I count those steps out and back. I don't want to go any farther, especially when it's windy, especially a day like today. Glad there's no mail on Sunday. In the book, Gentle and Lowly, which is a bit of a manifesto for some of us around here. We love that book. But in that book, the author quotes C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, talking about the temptation that Jesus endured, said this. It's like a man walking against the wind. And when you and I walk against the wind, we go so far and then we're like, I'm done walking against the wind. Like, I'm not going to go to the end of my street. I'm going to the mailbox, opening, getting back as quick as I can. Because the wind is blowing hard. C.S. Lewis says, temptation's like that. When we face temptation, we go so far and then we lie down like, I can't take it anymore. Jesus is better. You can have confidence in him. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. Jesus, listen, Jesus never laid down in the face of temptation. He never laid down. Lewis writes, he endured all of our temptations and testings. He never gave in. Imagine that. Therefore, Jesus knows the strength of temptation better than any one of us. You know what that means? You and I can have confidence in the covenant that Jesus brings when he died once for all for our sins. We can have confidence but because he never laid down, he endured our temptation. So confidence in the new covenant. How do we see that in chapter eight? That's what I want us to consider, all right? I got two main things to talk to you about. This is my second sermon with only two points. You're welcome, all right? It's probably gonna be longer than you thought, I'm sorry. But here's the first one. Confidence in the new covenant, main point. Here's why we have confidence. Jesus is already in the heavens. I don't think these are on the screen, so if you want to write them down, it's on you. Jesus is already in the heavens. That's what he says in verse six. Why does that, why does that make for confidence in the new covenant, in what Jesus has accomplished for us? Well, I think that's quite a statement that's really unraveled in chapter eight, verses one through six. Jesus is already in the heavens. In the Bible, and especially in Hebrews, and we're really going to see this in chapter, later on in chapter 9, Hebrews is a book full of past, present, and future implications. Past, present, and future realities. Think about when we talked about Melchizedek. You're like, back to Melchizedek, just for a second. Melchizedek, think about him in the Bible. He, there was past, present, and future realities about him. He was a guy in the past, a real king, priest, who lived. And then later in the Bible, in Psalms, David says he meant something more. And in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, yeah, he fulfilled, Jesus is fulfilled in him. And so when we read the Bible, and especially in Hebrews, there are past, present, and future realities. So Jesus is already in the heavens. 
He was there in eternity past as God. Hang on. He is there and he will always be there. Jesus is already in the heavens. One writer says, the most deeply Christian thing you can do when you read the Bible is integrate all the biblically determined turning points in the history of redemption from creation to consummation. So in other words, and we're going to get into this in a couple weeks, but listen, when you read the Bible, you should be saying, where else do I see this in the Bible? That's an important way to read the Bible. When words come up, you should be like, where have I, Melchizedek in Genesis, hmm, where else do I read about Melchizedek? Because the Bible gives us past, present, future realities, and nowhere is it more significant than in the book of Hebrews, all right? So that builds up to my first point there, confidence in the new covenant, because Jesus is already in the heavens. Um, three words to give you that unfold here, and we'll read some of these verses in verses one through six. Three words to start with S. It talks about Jesus being seated. It talks about things that are shadows and it talks about Jesus' sacrifice, all right? I think I gave you those three words. Let's look at these. Jesus is seated. Look what verse one says, A1. Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have the kind of high priest who what? Sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Jesus sat down. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of God. This is in contrast to the priests of the Old Testament. Did they ever sit down? Was there a lazy boy in the Old Testament temple? Answer is no. Constantly moving, constantly offering sacrifices. Jesus sacrificed one time, sat down. He's better. Question is, when did he sit down? Well, in the past, in the present, in the future. You don't believe me. Isaiah 6.1. I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne and the hem of his robe filled the temple. That's in the Old Testament. Jesus was there. Why? Because Jesus is God. So when it says God sat down in Isaiah 6, 1, that's Jesus. So from eternity past, he's seated on the throne. He's God. But it's, it's not that easy. It gets more interesting. Look at this. This is Hebrews 1, 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. We read this at the beginning of the series. The exact expression of his stature, of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purifications, he what? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I thought he was already seated in Isaiah 6.1. He was, and now he is. Past, present, future. Romans, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. And he is also, it doesn't say seated, but it's the same thing. He's seated at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. He's doing a work in heaven. He's God, he's always been there. But he's there through what he did on the cross as well. That's why we can have confidence in the covenant. One more, I took you the whole way through the Bible. You're welcome. Revelation 21.5. Then the one seated, guess who that is? Jesus, right answer. He's seated on the throne and he says, look, I'm making everything new. He's on the throne from eternity past to eternity future. And part of already being in the heavens is that when he came and he died and he was buried and he rose again and he ascended, he was seated in a new way. Here's what I'm telling you, you have confidence. You can have confidence in the new covenant of what Jesus did because he's always been there and he always will be there. And that's significant. Significant. So he's seated. He's already in the, he's already in the heavens. He's seated. But then it talks about shadows. And so the writer of Hebrews says, and he's been saying this, right? He's just adding another layer. He's saying to all these old, all these Jewish 
Christians who are new to Christ and, are, and want, to, want to go back to the Old Testament way of doing things. He's saying those things are shadows. Uh, look with me, verse five. These serve, what? In other words, these Old Testament rituals. These serve as a copy. Copy's not a good word. It's not really copy as much as it's an outline. The things of the Old Testament, they were outlines. They were basis for imitation. It's not like, it's not like they copied who Jesus is. They were more of a, a basis for imitation. Um, these serve as a copy and shadow, as a sketch of, one, of heavenly things. As Moses warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. That's a quote from Exodus 25, 40. And when we were in Exodus 25, 40, we saw that the temple was to be built a certain way. But the writer of Hebrews says, all those things, they were important. They are important in the scope of the Bible, but they were shadows of the substance of who Jesus is. Shadows of the substance of who he is. Sketches, prototypes, outlines. The future temporal heavenly sanctuary where Jesus is seated is the fulfillment and the true form of the earthly sanctuary and the earthly shadows. One writer says, so Colossians 2, 16, 17 says this. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a, new moon or a Sabbath day. The kind of things that the, that the readers in Hebrews are struggling with. Paul says in Colossians 2.17, those things are what? They're shadows. Christ is the substance. Colossians 2.17, that would make a great tattoo as well. What a great verse. These are a shadow of what was to come. He's the substance. He's the substance. He's seated He's, he's the substance of the shadows. Last word we see in this text, speaking of Jesus already being in the heavenlies, is he's the perfect sacrifice. Look at verse three. Verse three, for every high priest is, an, is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest, Jesus, to also have, to also have something to offer. And he did. What's the writer saying? He's saying, hey, in the, Old, in the Old Testament, in the shadow, the high priest, there were sacrifices. That high priest had things to sacrifice. So did Jesus. What did Jesus sacrifice? Something better. What was it? Himself. He sacrificed himself. His sacrifice is better. One writer says, since every high priest offers sacrifices for the atonements of sin, Christ necessarily had to have a fitting offering as he entered God's heavenly sanctuary on the behalf of us. And that fitting offering was himself. So Peter can say this. Christ also suffered once he suffered for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. You wonder why we call this series Jesus is Better? Man, Jesus is already in the heavens. Past, present, future. He's seated. All the things in the Old Testament were shadows pointing to him. He's the substance because he's the perfect sacrifice. He has, verse six tells us, look, a superior ministry, a better covenant, a better promise, and you can go back and listen to Will's sermon on chapter six, verses 13 through 20, where he unfolded all of that, that the promise and the oath that Jesus gives us is better. Two things that are unchangeable. It's a better sacrifice. Jesus is better. We can have confidence in the new covenant. So, man, before we go to the second thing, I just want to ask you quickly, are you still standing? Are you still standing in something when you, when you hear that Jesus is seated He's the one who's done the work for you. And some of you, you're living a Christianity that's just on a treadmill and I'm always going to church and I wanna make sure I do this and I wanna make sure I do that. And listen, those are good things in Christ. But if you're trying to do those to get to Jesus, you'll never do it. 
because he's the one who's seated. And if you're still standing in something and doing something, run to Jesus. You can have confidence in the new covenant in the one who is already in the heavens. He's seated. He's the perfect sacrifice. Or are you trusting some shadow? These Old Testament, are these, uh, these uh, Jewish Christians who are trusting the Old Testament, they were still living in the shadows. And the writer of Hebrews has to tell them time and time again, Jesus is better than that. Don't live in the shadows of whatever it is you're adding to or putting in the place of Jesus. He is already in the heavens. Jesus saves, and that's what we need, right? Maybe you're new to church. Maybe you're new to God, and you hear us use saved language. Well, are they saved? You're like, saved? That sounds weird. Like, are they lost? Well, I didn't know I was lost. You are. If you don't know Jesus, you're lost. You're unsaved. That's good language. You need to be saved, and you can't be saved by something that's a shadow or something that's some kind of work you can do as the priest did standing day after day, sacrifice after sacrifice. Jesus is already in the heavens. It is finished. He took care of it once for all. So important for us. Confidence in the new covenant means Jesus is already in the heavens. Confidence in the new covenant means that new covenant is now in our hearts. It's now in our hearts. Look down at the text again. This is where he picks up in verse seven. After he summarizes the fact that, man, Jesus is already in the heavens. He's the perfect sacrifice. These things are shadows. He's seated. The writer says, there's a new covenant and it's in our hearts. Factoid, verse seven through 13. Pastor Brent mentioned this last week. If you have a Bible, it's in bold print. You see that? It's a citation, students. Don't plagiarize. That's for free. It's a citation. What's he citing? He's citing Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And did you know, that's the longest New Testament citation of an Old Testament passage. It's very important. The writer of Hebrews is like, I want to tell you the whole thing about the new covenant that's shared with us in Jeremiah chapter 31. And the bottom line of it is this, we can have confidence in this new covenant because it's in our hearts. It's in our hearts. And in, in verses eight through 12, especially, this citation of the Old Testament covenant, he tells us several things. He tells us we're going from an old covenant to a new covenant. He uses these terms from kind of first to last. Let me read verse seven. Look, for, for if that first covenant, old covenant, sacrificial system, if that old covenant had been faultless, spoiler alert, it wasn't. If it had been faultless, there'd been no occasion for a second one, a new one, a better one. But finding fault with his people, he says, see, the days are coming, says the Lord. When I, and this is quoting Jeremiah now. He says, there's a day coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the first covenant, the old covenant. We're going from old to new. This new covenant is not like the old one that I made with their ancestors. And the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. This is Exodus. This is the law. I showed no concern for them. Man, that's strong language. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they didn't continue in my covenant. The writer of Hebrews says, the new covenant is now in our hearts because the old covenant, it wasn't in their hearts. And the people in the Old Testament, they turned their backs on God in rebellion and rejection of God. God says in this new covenant, look at verse 10, it's beautiful. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you know how many times that phrase is in the Bible? It's in Exodus and Leviticus and Jeremiah and Ezekiel three times and in Zechariah. I will be their God and they will be my people. God says, this new covenant's different. There's, it's not gonna be rebellion and rejection. I am gonna enter and give them a new heart. 
One writer says it expresses the goal God has to redeem people. His steadfast love will be met by people's grateful loyalty and obedience. And that's what happens when God gives us a new heart. As a result, God receives the glory and people receive the blessedness and generous promises. So it goes from old to new. Gaze down there at verses 10 and 11. It doesn't only go the confidence in the new covenant and the new covenant in our hearts. It goes from old to new. It also goes from external to internal. See this? Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. He says, I'm done with rejection. I'm done with rebellion. He says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, in their consciences and in their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. Each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, hey, know the Lord. That's not how it's gonna work because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, from the external to the internal. Parents here, trying to teach your kids things of God. Wouldn't it be great if the kids just woke up one day at like six and I'm like, hey, mom and dad, I got it all. It's in my heart. You don't have to tell me to know God. Be like, fantastic, crossing that off the list. On to the next thing. That's not what he's talking about. You can't just hope like somebody like, hey, you know what you need? A new heart. I hope God gives it to you. Don't talk to your kids like that, right? But what is he saying? He's saying, listen, in the writer was saying, in the old covenant, the people rejected and rebelled. And over and over again, there was the covering for sin. And I, I reached out to them. He's like, I'm done with that. The problem is in their heart. Their behavior's changing, but their heart is not changing. What they need is a new heart. And that's why Jesus came and died once for all to give me a new heart, to give you a new heart. That's our only hope. The writer says the new covenant goes from external to internal. Here's what I know about my heart, what Jeremiah knew about it. The heart is more deceitful. This is what he says in Jeremiah 17. It's more deceitful than anything else, and it's incurable. Who can understand it? But notice, Ezekiel 36 says, I will give, this is God, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new heart within you. Listen, if you know and follow Jesus, you know what you have, a new heart. God gave you that heart because of Christ, because of the work of the new covenant, because once for all, Jesus died. It makes all the difference. External to internal, I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I thought about it like this. In the old to the new covenant, we go from careful instructions to confident access. In the old covenant, it was careful instructions, the right kind of animal, the right day, the right sacrifice, the right attitude, over and over. And we're gonna see this next week, over and over. It's gotta be careful instructions. Pay attention or God will get you because he's holy. But into that comes Jesus. And now, instead of careful instructions, we have confident access because of what Jesus did, because he's the one who went into the temple not made by hands. Better sacrifice. New covenant. It's in my heart. From external to internal. From fault to forgiveness, that's the last thing. You are, you are forgiven. Look at verse 12. For I, God says, there won't be, when I give you a new heart, there won't be rebellion and rejection. Jesus, because of Jesus' work, you will have a new heart. And look at the work God promises to do in the new covenant. Because it's internal, he says, I, verse 12, I will forgive wrongdoing. I will never again remember their sins. These readers, they didn't have to go back to the temple and offer an animal and shed the blood of that animal to cover sins for one more time and no one's seated and everyone's working. The writer, he was just down with that. Doesn't work. 
What you need is a new heart. And when Jesus died once for all, his sacrifice was better and perfect. And so were his promises. And so we have a new heart in Jesus. And because of that, we go from verse seven. The first covenant had been faultless. There wouldn't have been an occasion for a second one. But because of the faultless covenant, the new covenant of what Jesus did, we are forgiven. This is 10, uh, Hebrews 10. I think this summarizes so well. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days. The new covenant, the Lord says. I will put my law in their hearts, write them on their minds. I will never again remember their lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. What a verse to press into. From old to new, from external to internal, from fault to forgiveness. That's confidence in the new covenant. So what? Well, here's so what. What does that mean for you and me? It means this, number one. Let me give you several points of application from this. Jesus is our mediator. That's number one. You're like, give me the bottom line, Fry. You promised you would. I'm here. You can have confidence in the new covenant because Jesus is our mediator. Uh, six. Look at 8.6. Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. To that degree, he is the, see that? Mediator of a better covenant. We have spent a lot of time the last couple weeks telling you this. You need a high priest. Some of you are like, that's weird. Like, what is a high priest? If you Google high priest, you know what one of the first things that pops up? High priest of country music, which was an album by Conway Twitty. <laughs> I had a guy tell me after last service, that's the first Conway Twitty reference he's ever heard in church. So it's a big, it's a big Sunday. Some of you may be, I know you're not talking about a Conway Twitty album from the 1970s. I'm not. But some of you are like, high priest, I don't understand, Matt. High priest sounds weird. High priest sounds like a cult. I don't know what high priest sounds like to you. All right. It's important because you do need a high priest, but here, the writer of Hebrews introduces us to a different word. You need a mediator. You see that? Now, hopefully mediator is a word we understand. It's the same thing. Why do I need a mediator? Why? why is there confidence in the new covenant that Jesus is my mediator? Here's why. Here, here's what one writer says. Mediation. Jesus is our mediator. When we think of mediators, some of you do this at work. You, you've been involved in mediation. It's usually a dispute settled in a peaceful fashion as a lower cost to both sides. So it's like I, I bring the worker side, the company side, they bring all their stuff together and the mediator tries to kind of find the middle ground. Okay, you got that in your head? That's not what Jesus is. Jesus is not that, this writer says, Jesus is not that kind of mediator. He doesn't see compromise. He doesn't say, hey God, hey Father, look at, look at Fry. He's bad, but he's got a couple good things. Now God, you're loving and let's, no. That's not the kind of mediator we're talking about. He's not seeking compromise. He doesn't ask both sides, sinful man and the holy God to meet in the middle. And everybody gives a little round, ground. God gives a little ground. Fry gives a little ground. No. Jesus is an entirely different kind of mediator between us and God. It's not a two-way street that brings our good to God to see what can be arranged. Jesus, Jesus is the good that is brought to God. He is both the mediation and the mediator. Hebrews 2 already showed us he's the high priest in the sacrifice, if you like the high priest language. He's both. Jesus' mediation is not simply a negotiator on our behalf. He's the fulfillment of everything we failed to be in the old covenant before God. He's the keeper of the law that you and I could not keep. 
He's a sacrifice for sins that we have and will commit, all of them, once for all. He lives now at the right hand of God as a ruler and a judge, as the embodiment of the new covenant and as the assurance of the promises that he will fulfill when he returns. You can have confidence in the new covenant because you have a mediator, but it's not about negotiation, it's about salvation. Jesus is your mediator, but he's the mediation. He comes to God saying, I took Matt's sin. He doesn't have anything to offer, but I took his sin on his behalf. Accept him. And God the Father looks at the son and says, I accept Fry. He doesn't bring anything. You understand how important that is? That's why we say you have to have a high priest because you can't go to God. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We need someone to represent us who did the good we could never do. And the only person that could do that is Jesus. Salvation and not negotiation. Paul says it like this. This is 2 Timothy. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Sounds like he's been reading Hebrews. Maybe he was. I don't know. Jesus is our mediator. A couple minutes here. God wants your heart. That's the second thing. Jesus is your mediator. God wants your heart. God wants your heart. We said, we went from careful instructions to confident access. In the Old Testament, careful instructions. Read Deuteronomy. You better get it right because God is holy. New covenant is, I have confident access to God through Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus gave me a new heart. He did something that I could never do and all of us understand the power of that. We use terms like hard-hearted and soft-hearted and big-hearted and cold-hearted and heartless. I'm not done. Hold you in my heart. Turn on your heart light. Heart of gold. All heart. No heart. Have a heart. You know why we talk like that? Because we know this is where it's at. Because we know that when someone just changes behavior, it's external. It's on the outside. It doesn't mean anything. But when God really gets a hold of somebody's heart, it changes everything. Because he does a work that none of us can do. You can't change your heart. It's hardened. Only Jesus can do that. And that's what the new covenant is. And that's why we can have confidence. Because man, I'm glad you come to church, but God is not after your behavior. First and foremost, he wants your heart. He wants to take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh because only God can do that. Last thing is this, your, your sins are forgiven. I said that earlier, but I want to say it again because is there anything more significant than that? Look at verse 12. For this is... This is God talking about the new covenant. For I will forgive their wrongdoing. I will never again remember their sin. You sin this week? Come up and share one of your sins with me after the service. I'm kidding. But you did. You sinned this week. So did I. Multiple times. If you know and follow Jesus, you're forgiven. You know that? Because of the new covenant. Because of Jesus. Once for all. If we confess our sins, he is Faithful and just, this is what the Bible says, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. If you know and follow Jesus, you're forgiven. Can I just tell you, Christian friend, that means you should be a forgiver. Struggling to forgive here? I hope you can remember that you're forgiven. And if you can't, read Matthew 18, 21 to 35 when you go home today. Because it will remind you of the power of forgiveness when you realize you're forgiven. Paul Tripp, right? Paul Tripp writes, those of us who know and follow Jesus, we celebrate God's mercy, but we scream at our kids when they mess up. We sing amazing grace, but we punish our spouse with silence when they offend us. We praise God 
for his love, but for sake of friendship because someone has momentarily been disloyal. We're thankful we've been forgiven, but we say that a person who is suffering the results of his or her decision is getting what they deserve. We bask in God's grace, but we throw law at everybody else. We tell you, if you live like that, you don't know Jesus. There's no boldness in a new covenant. People who understand the depth to which they are forgiven in Jesus, forgive others. And listen, I know forgiveness is complicated, but I'm telling you, go back to Hebrews 8, put your nose in that text and understand this. We are forgiven if we're in Jesus. Once for all, confidence in the new covenant. We should be forgivers. We have a high priest if we know and follow Jesus. Last thing is this, you need a high priest if you don't know and follow Jesus. I explain what that means. You need a mediator who is also the mediation. And here's what I know. A lot of us, we come knowing we're bankrupt, but some of us here, if we don't know Jesus, we bargain with him. Okay, God, I'm gonna go to church more. All right, I'm gonna stop drinking. I'll stop looking at that. I'll stop, I'll stop, I'll stop. I'll do, I'll do, I'll do. I'll bargain with God. I'm bankrupt, I'll bargain with God. That's some of you. That's how you're trying to get to God. You'll never do it. That's old covenant. The new covenant is this. You need to open your heart to God and say, God, in the best way I know how, I come to you and know that Jesus died for my sins and I can't be a better person without Jesus. Some of you bargaining out of your bankruptcy. Good luck with that. Luck's not a thing, but you know what I mean. Some of you, you come and you think you're beyond what Jesus has for you. Some of you bargaining with God, but some of you coming and you think, Fry, if you knew what I did, if I did come up to you after service and I told you some sins, I would feel like there's, I'm beyond God. You're not. You understand you're bankrupt, but listen, there is confidence in the new covenant and what Jesus did for you once for all to take away your sin, to give you a new heart. He can meet you wherever you are in your sin. You're not beyond his grace. In your bankruptcy, you have a mediator. You have a high priest who is the sacrifice for your sins once for all. So if you come bargaining or thinking you're beyond What Jesus can do for you, you're wrong. Friend, verse 13, give up holding on to what is obsolete and growing old and passing away. It won't get you to Jesus because there's one God and there's one mediator. A mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave his life as a ransom. You need a high priest and that's Jesus who gives us confidence in the new covenant which is in our hearts. We have a mediator. Our sins are forgiven. Jesus is better. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you for sending Jesus. I thank you for opening us up to an incredible amount of the biblical story that speaks to us of a covenant through your son, a covenant that's new, a covenant that's better a covenant that saves. Friends, I'm praying over you now if you're here and you are trying to bargain your way to God out of your bankruptcy. You can't do it. You cannot be good enough for God. Can't. It's Jesus plus nothing. He's the one who gave you a new heart. Once for all, you need to turn your life to him. After the service, come up and tell me, how do I find Jesus? In the quietness of your heart, say, God, I confess my sin to you. I know I I can't be good enough for heaven. You can't. But you need to have confidence in the new covenant of Jesus Christ who came and died once for all for your sin. To bring you to God. To ransom you. Simple way. Best you know how. Pray to God. Say, God, forgive me of my sin. I want Jesus. 
I want to be saved. You feel like you're beyond Jesus today? You're not. If you, if you say, bankrupt, I'm bankrupt. I'm beyond God. You're not. You're not. He loves you. He died for you. Not in the shadows. He's seated on the throne. Give your life to him. Best you know how. God, what a mess I've made. He can clean that mess up. It's in his blood. I'm preaching again. God, I gotta get back to praying. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Where would we be? We're forgiven. God, we thank you for the work that you've done at the cross through Christ. I pray, God, you would work in the hearts of those who need to be forgiven today. Lord, for those of us who know and follow you, I pray we would forgive. We'd be those kind of people. Thank you for the confidence we have in the new covenant. In Christ's name we pray, amen.